This is the fourth and final episode of Frontier series looking into the situation in Rakhine State. This episode will look further into the August attacks and analyse what measures need to be taken to bring an end to what has been a long protracted conflict. On August 23, the Advisory Commission on Rakhine State submitted its final report to the Myanmar government. A day later, a press conference was held in Yangon to present the findings to the media. The recommendations made in the report met a largely positive reaction. They included beginning a process to amend the 1982 citizenship law, one of the main reasons many Rohingya remain stateless. Kofi Annan, the head of the commission, said that citizenship verification and freedom of movement were crucial to helping solve some of the problems in Rakhine. It's complex, we could abduct it, but we felt it was so important that we had to focus on it and make recommendations which we hope would be helpful. And if it is properly implemented, I think it will help accelerate the process of verification and regularize situations of quite a few people. We should remember that Myanmar has the largest group of stateless people in the world, and that situation is not sustainable. And so we are optimistic. We hope it will be implemented. We think every effort should be made to implement it. The Commission also urged the government to ensure and publicly declare that all communities in the state have equal access to education and health care, regardless of their religion, ethnicity or citizenship status. Kofi Annan said the Commission's mandate had ended with the publication of the report. Senior members of the government, including State Councillor Do Aung San Suu Kyi, had vowed to establish a secretariat tasked with overseeing and monitoring implementation of the recommendations. Responsibility for the implementation of our recommendations now lies with Myanmar's leaders, institutions and people, the Union and Rakhine state governments, the national and state parliaments, religious and community leaders, and above all, the people of Rakhine. There is no time to lose. The situation in Rakhine state is becoming more precarious. Within hours, the balance had tipped once more. Early the next morning, the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army launched a new wave of attacks on police outposts in northern Rakhine. The attacks and response by security forces left at least 110 people dead within the first week. Tens of thousands have fled Mongdor, some to Sitwe in Buridang and others over the border into Bangladesh. At the time of recording, Nearly 20,000 are reported to have sought refuge in Bangladesh, but there are reports that Bangladeshi authorities have turned many back. There have been reports of abuses being committed by both militants and security forces, but at the time of recording, these have not been verified. Myanmar's government has accused staff from international agencies of colluding with the militant group, which it has officially declared a terrorist organisation, and the United Nations has evacuated all non-essential staff from the area. At the time of recording, Aung San Suu Kyi had made no official comment. Almost immediately after the attacks, Kofi Annan issued a statement condemning them and expressing concern at the escalation of violence. He called for perpetrators to be held to account and urged all communities and groups to reject violence. Amid criticism from the international community of their approach in Rakhine State, the government has said it is working to bring peace and development. In July, in a meeting with journalists in Sitwe, 
Rakhine State Chief Minister Un Yipu said that the government is formulating plans that would help bring the communities together, but that the attacks in the state's north had hindered progress. The government is currently in the planning stage to try and help teens return to the situation. When the government is condemning this plan, they have to be very careful because we have seen a lot of violence in northern Rakhine. On the ground, a handful of civil society groups and NGOs are working to try and improve trust between the communities there. A member of one of these groups spoke to Frontier in June, but asked that his voice and name not be used because of the sensitivity of his work. He said that one way of making progress on the issue would be to engage young people from the Rakhine and Muslim communities. Because the youth are very energetic and can help to heal the situation, they're more than other people. Many Rakhine youth at first think that people of other religions or from different communities are producing bad things or are violence. But once they learn and improve their knowledge about conflict, about peace and dialogue, they can change their attitude and improve the way they see the other community. He said that a return to normalcy, even in central Rakhine, where there is more hope for reconciliation than in the north of the state, would take a significant amount of political will from the government. So far, though, he said he has seen little evidence of that. Even though it seems like they are trying their best to do something positive, to make change between the conflicting communities. My personal point of view is that they are not being strategic in their work on the conflict. He also called on the government to uplift the role of local actors and civil society groups working on engaging communities in dialogue, as well as ensuring the rule of law. Unless there is rule of law in the state, it is not possible to make a time frame for conflicting communities to engage. For instance, even if the government tells the Muslim community to move freely, there is no guarantee for their security to move around in the other community, and also no guarantee if a Rakhine goes into the Muslim community. Many focus on the restrictions of the Muslim community, but if I could highlight one area, it is that the government should ensure rule of law in the state, so whoever commits and acts against the law should be charged accordingly, whether they are Rakhine or Muslim. I think that will have to control further violence and conflict in the area. But conditions in the camps are deteriorating day by day. Mark Cutts, head of the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Myanmar, said that all people in the state should be allowed access to their basic human rights. Um, we want uh, to see people uh, treated humanely, um, and for those in camps, uh, we want to see them provided with decent living conditions and access to services until such time as they're able to either return to their communities or um, have another safe and dignified and, and durable solution. But at the moment, the, the policy has been to uh, keep the communities apart for, uh, for security reasons. That's been the approach of the government, uh, not one of um, integration and you know, really working on the, the reconciliation. Instead, it's been a policy of, um, of, of keeping people apart. But it will not be an easy task. Tensions between the communities have simmered, particularly since 2012, and the violence in the north has only heightened distrust on all sides. Independent analyst Richard Horsey said that even during periods where communities lived side by side, tensions had lingered below the surface. I think the challenge is uh, that the, the problems in Rakhine State aren't 
limited to this intercommunal issue. We now have an insurgency, which is not about intercommunal relations at all. That's about state society relations, about the, the, uh, the way that, that that population feels it's treated. And you have a much broader issue, which is the, the Rakhine, the Buddhist Rakhine, are also emerging from a long period of oppression and marginalization by successive regimes. Uh, they should not be the poorest state in the country. They are. That's, a, that's a, an expression of how much that marginalization uh, has, has had an impact. And so you're really dealing with a multi-dimensional problem. You're dealing with, a, with an inter, intercommunal relations problem. But you're also dealing with uh, the, the history and legacy of, of long uh, marginalization and oppression of this ethnic minority group uh, in the same way that the, uh, that the Kachin or the Karen or other minorities feel, feel that they've been, they've been marginalized. And so, in a sense, you can't solve the intercommunal problem in Rakhine without solving the broader issue of Rakhine. And it's difficult to solve the, or the broader issue of Rakhine while you have that intercommunal problem there. And it's difficult to solve it without solving the broader question of minority rights in Myanmar and ethnic rights in Myanmar. And that, as we know, is the most difficult problem that this and any other government of Myanmar will have to face. There are no easy solutions to that, no quick solutions to that. The current situation on the ground is merely a symptom of the desperation felt by many in Rakhine State for several decades. Any steps towards reconciliation will require leadership from the government and genuine inclusion of all communities living in the state. As the violence continues and desperation rises, the stakes have never been higher and a path forward remains unclear. Thank you for listening to this four-part series looking into the issues in Rakhine State. I'm Oliver Slow, reporting for Frontier Myanmar. This podcast was produced by Victoria Milko, with additional reporting by Sue Myat Mon. Thank you.